I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast, Bits and Bobs from across the British film industry, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry Barnes, the BFI's digital editor, and coming up this episode we have... Odd stuff, as Glasgow's Weird Weekend Festival brings strange and unseen cinema, including Bill and Ted star Alex Winter's splendid Freaked to the big screen. I'll be talking to Winter and programmer Sean Welsh. Sentimental stuff, as Ian McKellen reminisces about his feature film debut, A Touch of Love. Sinister stuff, as director Mark Mayers talks about his Jeffrey Dahmer biopic. And... Starry stuff. We present dispatches from far, far away. Well, Pinewood Studios, which is a bit of a pain to get to from London anyway. As Don Bentley, third AD on Solo, a Star Wars story, talks about what it's like working on a film production the size of a small galaxy. And let's start among the stars. Solo, a Star Wars story is released in UK cinemas this week. The film, a Han Solo origin story, is directed by Ron Howard and stars Alden Ehrenreich, Amelia Clarke and Donald Glover. As with any massive film production, they're backed up by an imperial army of film crew, among them third AD Donald Bentley. Don, who also worked on The Last Jedi, the most recent Transformers film, and Howard's Moby Dick movie in The Heart of the Sea, has ample experience of working on Hollywood's biggest films. We met at his flat where I asked Don to explain his job and tell us about his origin story. What does a third assistant director do, Don? Uh, well, it's within the assistant directing team and ultimately the ADs schedule a film um, and then run the actors' days through prep, you know, picking them up, getting them into fittings or hair and makeup or whatever. On like a, a shooting day, the ADs just run the floor and make sure everyone's on the same page, everyone knows what's happening, and we work with the other departments to try and realise a director's vision. As a third AD, I support the first AD on the floor. I'm sort of a link between him and the second AD, who is at base predominantly like prepping for the next day shooting and also uh, getting the actors ready and you know costume, hair and makeup, getting ready for the shooting day and send them down to set. And how did you get into what you do? It really started with my older brother, um, who was working in, in production at the time. Um, and we were living in Deptford. And he was on the production side of a, a music video by Christina Train called uh, Dark Black, I believe. 
Um, you know that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Stormed up the charts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back down again. <laughs> and, uh, he got me and my twin brother in as runners on that music video, and that was pretty much like the first like paid thing that I did, and I didn't have a clue what was going on. From there, it was just more like music videos and promos until I got a job on Silk with the BBC. And then off the back of that, it's sort of like right time, right place. I was doing a episode of Home and Away uh, in London and Craig Toppen, who was the third at the time and I was a runner, uh, I was stood next to him and he got a call from someone who was on Heart of the Sea and asked him if they knew any any runners or PAs or whatever. He was like, yeah, I'm, I'm stood next to one right now with a guy called Donald, I'll pass, pass him over. I did a few days on Heart of the Sea. This is the Ron Howard film. Yeah, the Ron right? Howard film, yeah. yeah. And um, they went abroad to La Gomera and I was shooting a short film for the BBC in the Thamesmead estate and it was like a real grim day, like raining and uh, just grey. And... Um, I got a phone call from the second Tom Rye at the time and was like, can you uh, get in a car and come to Lagomera for six weeks tomorrow? Yes, I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Centuries before, sailors feared sailing off the edge of the earth. But we were headed for the edge of sanity. I was a catering PA on, on that film. And that was pretty much just getting food because they were out on the boat shooting all the stuff at sea and it was just getting their lunch to the crew from from land to them and, you know, getting the orders and stuff. Uh, And then it just sort of snowballed from there, really. I ended up on The Huntsman. That's where I met Andy Madden. And he sort of has kept me in work ever since then, really. Followed him around and ended up on solo. This is a really tricky question, but like, do you have a sense of what qualities you have that have made you good for this job and mean that you keep getting hired? I like to think I work hard and I'm hopefully a nice person to work with. I do feel that growing up, my dad was in the RAF, he was a chef, and um, like growing up on RAF bases, I feel, is very similar to a film studio. Yeah. Like All the different departments, there's a lot of parallels there, and I think that and moving every couple of years in the RAF and making... Uh, new beginnings and having to always have first impressions with people which on a a film set you do literally every day Mm. Um, I do think that that's like something that's ingrained that really like helps in in my role that I do now you know heard about a job big shot gangster putting together crew I'm a driver and I'm a flyer I waited a long time for a shot like this what do you think? Well, what do you know? You went to the cast and crew screening of Solo today. I did, yeah. How does it feel watching a film that you've worked on, particularly of that size? Do you remember specific scenes? Do you come out of the film thinking, oh yeah, that's reminded me of actually shooting that? Or is it more just a kind of like a photo montage of your time on that film? Um, yeah, the films are always definitely like a lovely uh, sort of like reminder of your years work and there's definitely certain things that spring back into your mind as you're watching the film that you remember from a certain location or like specifically the dolomite stuff like all the snow sequence just like the amazing landscapes and you're just like wow like that was that was cool if you come with us you're in this life for good you might want to buckle up baby what's the most challenging thing about your job in all honesty it's probably the hours uh shoot day uh, is normally 10 hours but we 
given hour either side so we're at the studio for 12 hours as a minimum and then that's I live in London but the studios can be at least an hour's drive maybe more if you're shooting outside of London or whatever so there's a lot of time away from your friends and family and when you go we travel a, a fair amount as well so yeah it can be tough when you're on a, a long long film especially I mean I don't have any kids but it, I can only imagine for the the crew members that do have small children it must be you know horrendous but that's definitely the toughest things and it's, it's fatigue as well you know it's just sleep deprivation all of that thing and when you get to the weekend you want to go and see your friends and family but sometimes you're just shattered you know broken yeah. the most enjoyable part is when a big scene starts to come together because you know there's so much prep and time before it and then when you get on there and you're working with the director and you've got say like two or three hundred background and the sets are all you know amazingly designed and they're all beautiful and then you've got like action vehicles and you're running like a big scene when you're watching that at the monitor the dance all starts to come together then that's that's something that's really like satisfying how do you deal with celebrity in your job because i imagine you're spending a lot of time around people that are quite famous and yeah. and there's an element of being discreet about that as well but you must build personal relationships with people that would be recognizable and that must seem quite strange sometimes as well it, yeah it can do to be honest i um don't really have a massive knowledge of like celebrities if you like or hollywood or on on heart of the city i was locking off outside of a, a set and someone came up and asked me where chris hemsworth trailer was and i replied uh, which department is he in <laughs> and they were like he's number one on the call sheet like this guy must be an idiot is there an understanding or do you are you like officially bound by any kind of nda when you're working with people like that and and how does that your, affect your personal life when you like are you able to talk about what you're working on with friends and family mm, is not there, really like, no. being careful yeah there's definitely ndas on everything and it's pretty much the first thing you do when you walk through the door is like here you go sign this nda and that's everyone even if you're a daily member or if you're just visiting the set um everyone is under an nda it can be it can can be quite tough to come home and just be like eh, you know how's your day like yeah it's all right and just sort of keep it to that after something is it revenge money or is it something else we the public see these films long after you've worked on them often and i, I just wondered how close you keep them to you for example when critics see it and if they don't like the film that you've worked on does that get to you or is that more just a that's an extra element of the job. I'm just here to make the stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't take any of that stuff personally. Like, I do take an interest and read what critics and see how it's received and and sort of keep a half eye on the films that I've worked on and see how they're doing. But um, I certainly don't take it personally. No, if if it bombs or whatever, I'm like, yeah, cool. That was that was a bit dodgy, wasn't it? And then, you know, yeah, I feel man. much better about all those films that you worked on. That I slacked <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah.
Donald Bentley, The Force is Strong in blah blah blah. Solo, a Star Wars story, is in UK cinemas now. Look closely, and I think you'll see that the third assistant directing on that film is absolutely stellar. Next, Sir Ian McKellen, who popped along to the BFI South Bank a few weeks ago to talk about his feature film debut, A Touch of Love. Based on the novel The Millstone by Margaret Drabble, the film follows Rosamond, a bookish doctorate student played by Sandy Dennis, and George, a rising TV news anchor played by McKellen. A brief moment of ill-advised intimacy leaves Sandy pregnant, and both her and the sexually ambiguous George in a bind. McKellen was joined for this interview by the film's director, Waris Hussein, who was at Cambridge University with both the actor and Drabble. The fact that he was uh, gay or bad, we wouldn't have used that word in those days, probably. I mean, because you used, uh, Maggie uses gay in, in this a different context, old sense, yeah. doesn't she, in, in the script. Uh, what well, bisexual, let's say, and uh, we never talked about that, did we? I mean, I suppose we, we both knew it, being gay ourselves, that there were people like George around. <laughs> but it wasn't a big feature. But this, this was a movie and, and a novel about an unmarried mother. That, that was it. Not who had a bisexual uh, one-night stand. That was just... Uh, well, Maggie had a f finger on the, the pulse of those times, I think, because... Given the very different attitudes at, at, at the time to being homosexual, bisexual, etc., et did it did it give you any cause for concern taking the part? No, at no, all? I, I don't think it crossed my mind. But that, that now you tell me that I, I didn't immediately jump at it. Perhaps I thought I shouldn't be playing. No, I don't, I don't remember um, it really. We didn't actually think like that at all. I mean, in the sense that what we did do, because at that time you simply did not become ex explicit about any of the things. I didn't ever think I could uh, in any way express myself on my gay side at, at Cambridge at all. You didn't either, did you? I mean, I thought, I never saw you in that context, so. <laughs> I mean, I saw you as Ian McKellen, the, the I know, well, we, we, we were I mean, very, we, were, we, we never were did very... any of those things, because it just wasn't in, uh, I mean, at that we time. We were very, very repressed. We were, we were very repressed. And so, all these people I was going, I actually had, Girlfriends visiting, trying to make myself, you know. Did you? Yeah. Any luck? No. <laughs> <laughs> Morris, this is a very rare example of, of Margaret Drabble adapting her, her novels for, into a screenplay. Did, yes. did the screenplay arrive fully formed, or did you have to do much work on it? Uh, that's a very nice question, because I'll tell you something. She, I think, she's one of the few novelists who have adapted their own work into a screenplay. Mostly writers sell their works and somebody then works on it and it may turn out to be totally different and the writers as well, you know, I've sold it so I don't really think about it anymore. She actually not only adapted it, but I thought she did an amazing job. Of, uh, it's her first uh, and only ever screenplay. And I thought she followed her instincts with great integrity. Maggie and I knew each other very well in Cambridge, but we were never intimate in, in the exchange of views on anything or, or being indiscreet together or, or having a, a, a long, you know, midnight conversation together. We, we, we just did a bit of acting together. But of course, she, she's a wise bird and, and, and she was looking at me all the time that we were being sort of friends. But she didn't know anything about me, and she never once... I mean, we have never had a conversation with Maggie about m me being gay and the fact that we've, we've been rather intimate in, in, in place. And, 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 uh, but Ian, at that uh, time... And Clive said, yeah. Clive, her husband, said, you, you, you know, Maggie, uh, 
base George on you, don't you? That's who she was thinking of when she was writing the book. Oh, right. So that, that's how Maggie saw me, but I wasn't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back to Cambridge, which you m mentioned there, why do you think it was such a hotbed of uh, amazing talent at that time in the early 60s? And I'm wondering, um, with the criticism that there is uh, for, for Cambridge now for taking its intake from a, what many people regard as quite a narrow middle class base or from public school, etc., mm. do you feel that you would both have got into Cambridge today? I doubt it, yes, no. I, I got in through an audition. I actually did a piece of Shakespeare for my future supervisor who wasn't interested in my academic achievements. Thank goodness, because uh, <laughs> they didn't exist. I, I've always thought Cambridge had uh, one up on Oxford in that there was an undergraduate-run theatre, the Amateur Dramatic Club in Cambridge, where most plays were done, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, the the yeah. Marlowe Society uh, then twice a year would go and play in the professional theatre in Cambridge, the arts. But uh, so we were running this theatre. People were designing for it. They were writing plays for it. They were directing them. It, it was it was a it was a powerhouse really. And then when you you had some as alert and brilliant as John Barton as as uh, uh, directing plays, uh, preceded not many years before by Peter Hall, who was then an undergraduate. Uh, and then it was just, I think, the confluence of the chance that uh, so many people who were very keen on acting and, and performing were there together. I mean, forget forget acting and directing. I mean, look at the comedy stuff, Peter Cook and David Frost and John Fortune and Eleanor mm -hmm. doing footlights. Well, yeah, I was never allowed in there. <laughs> no. Uh, and. Uh, and out of, out of that came Beyond the Fringe and, and, all, sort, and, and, and all the other later stuff, the, um, the Flying Circus, the, 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 weren't they Cambridge? John Cleese, wasn't he Cambridge? I don't know, I'm sure, I'm sure yes. they were. Yeah. Yeah. Is it different at all acting in front of the film camera to the television camera or just the same? That's the sort of question that you have people write books about. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, uh, Yes, the 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 the, um, the advantage of film is is that you can do it many many times. Yeah. Huh? That's not what I remember about this. I suspect we were on quite a tight schedule. Oh, we, we, we? Yeah. very few retakes. I mean, we did maybe two or three takes per setup, yeah. but not well, many more. I graduated to twenty three takes, you know, with Peter Jackson. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> about uh, six months ago, Jonathan Mumby said to me, rehearsing King Lear. Uh, very good, in, but uh, just surprise yourself. <laughs> That's a good one. Don't know what you're going to do next, because the character doesn't. Ah. Just surprise yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, I've taken that to heart, and it, it has absolutely changed my attitude to acting Shakespeare. Because anyway. in Shakespeare, everybody knows what's coming next. The audience can recite it with you. So, surprise, take take the pause, <sighs> have the idea, you know, in the moment. A Touch of Love is available in the BFI's online shop, and McKellen playing the part, a documentary about the actor's life and career, is released in the UK on June first. 
Let's continue our journey down. My Friend Dharma is the new film from director Mark Meyer. Starring Disney alumni Ross Lynch as Dharma, it tells the story of the serial killer before he killed. Following his troubled home life, and his friendship with John Backdurf, aka Durf, the cartoonist whose book of the same name inspired the film. I spoke to Mark Mayer at last year's London Film Festival and asked him about the complications inherent in portraying serial killers as anything other than monstrous. I now present to you, Jeff. Jeffrey. For this, I'm Jeffrey. Okay, then I present to you Jeffrey Dahmer in his command performance. We want to travel through the eyes and mind of other people. I've just chosen a character that is, is, is dark. Jeff's a little off, you know? I think he's kind of hilarious. Hey, Jeff, do you want to come sit at our table? I think we should form a fan club. With you as our fearless leader, we can really disrupt this school. Everybody ready? I'm not an expert on serial killers, but I, I, I think one thing that happened with this main, with this real person is that when he was caught, he was happy that they stopped him because he knew he couldn't stop it himself. And he became somewhat of an open book sharing how he felt and what his life was like with the people that were interviewing him. And so people then had a way to enter into understanding all the crazy, dark, things that he was talking about where some of these other serial killers they maybe don't they continue to play games with the population even after they're caught and so you never really know what the truth is but with him he sat down and admitted to almost everything that he could think of so he he allowed people to understand him you want to talk to somebody about it i see things in you that i don't like about myself want you to have friends in ways that I never could. All of the forces that, that are at play in his life, the dissolving marriage of his parents and the cruelty of teenagers that surround him, all contribute to the making of a monster. But he was, you know, someone who, as a character, was not wired properly. So it's that mixture or that perfect storm together that's contributing to that. And with that, then, I think the audience then understands him in a deeper fashion and they then experience empathy. I didn't make a horror movie, but I tried to make something that was horrifying in broad daylight. That was kind of my MO. Um, and so that's, that's what I give you is a horrifying tale of a teenager in high school. But also it's funny because kids are idiots and they do stupid things, even the smartest of them. And I, it's nice to be reminded that we're, we're all just a bunch of buffoons in high school that are insensitive to our, to our friends at times and don't really understand yet the world and how we're affecting other people. Take a deep breath. Are you okay? You seem healthy to me. What about what's on a patient's mind? My Friend Dharma, a troubling but fascinating watch, is in UK cinemas from June 1st. And here we are down in the gutter, stars way above us. All kinds of strange people down here, freaks and weirdos, the best of us really. Luckily there's a home for us all. 
Sean Welsh is the programmer of Matchbox Cine Club's Weird Weekend, a festival of strange and unseen cinema that hopes to bring some undeservedly forgotten odysseys back from obscurity. Among them is a lively specimen, Freaked, a thoroughly wonky 80s fable-slash-folk-story-slash-celebrity satire directed by Tom Stern and Bill and Ted star Alex Winter, which opens the festival. The film sees fictional Hollywood megastar Ricky Coogan, played by Winter, transformed into a mutant by a chemical he's chosen to endorse. It's a bit browning, it's got hints of hues and the zest of Zappa. I spoke to Sean first about the importance of taking strange stuff seriously, then I got on the phone to Alex in LA to ask him what made Freaked so unique. After your hideous disfigurement, you are showing incredible courage by agreeing to finally show yourself in public. <sighs> Thanks. America has watched you grow up in television and in movies. Now, after your horrific ordeal, the very mention of your name makes children scream in terror. Ricky Coogan, <coughs> the world is waiting to hear your story. How often do hideous mutant freaks pop up in, in weird film? You know, I think it really depends on your definition of cult. Um, we have a kind of a broad, a broad church, um, and so the films we uh, we screen don't often have hideous mutant freaks, uh, maybe less than you'd expect. Um, so we screen films that are like uh, just basically out of circulation, um, that we, we, we kind of call them orphans, outcasts, and outliers. So they don't necessarily have to have a really obnoxious uh, cult element, uh, but it sometimes helps. Usually. A cult film of whatever type has to have a certain degree of sincerity to its weirdness. I think that, you know, if, if the, the storytelling and the influences and the casting, you know, I think of all of this is, is played pretty sincerely in terms of its dedication to making something far out and, and legitimately edgy, um, then, you know, oftentimes it finds it finds its, its target. Recently we screened Turkish Star Wars, um, a film that's become known as Turkish Star Wars, and one of, uh, one of the number of things that, uh, problems that, you know, obstacles that it faces is the fact that people love watching clips of it and kind of chuckling at the, you know, the kind of the daftness of it, but they, they might not want to, and that's true of a lot of these Turkish re-exploitation films, but they don't necessarily kind of show up when somebody puts their money where their mouth is and puts out a DVD because they're, they're really just interested in the, in the clips. It's about how you present the film. No disrespect to anyone that's running bad film night, but I think quite often uh, that does a disservice to the films. I mean, some, a lot of the times these films are out of context, so if you screen them, they seem like, you know, like they're not in on the joke. Or, you know, uh, especially with a film like, again, Turkish Star Wars, it's a film made in a very compromised set of circumstances. Um, and uh, quite often it isn't on the joke, so but if you show that out of context, it, it becomes about how, how bad supposedly Turkish filmmakers are, and um, that's just wrong. And so you don't necessarily need to beat people over the head with it, but you can say, you know, this is this is the context of this film, this is how we're showing it.
Tom and I had just come out of NYU um, when we first met the Butthole Surfers. And in fact, we started doing work with them at NYU. When we were still at NYU, we shot some concert films for them, and we um, we did some other short pieces. But uh, and Freaked was originally written the, as a Butthole Surfers vehicle. Um, yeah. It was ri- it was written with Gibby Haynes, who came and lived with us in Venice, California, for a month or so, slept on our floor, and wrote a very, I mean, it makes what we currently have seem like a Gidget movie. It was very, very over the top. It was kind of like a, you know, a Roger Corman uh, beach blanket horror movie uh, with music. And nobody was interested in that. But there were, there, there was kind of rumblings in the underground of this type of stuff at that time. Um, you had, you know, bands like the Butthole Surfers. You had, and Guar. Um, you had, uh you know, filmmakers like Sam Raimi making the Evil Dead series, Peter Jackson making Bad Taste and other films of that nature, Meet the Feebles. So there, this stuff was pretty uh, niche. I mean, I think Raimi busted through that better than anyone, but it was really, you know, this was before Tim Burton, this was before South Park, you know, people like the Buttholes and Sam and other people doing work like that were people that we were, um, were within our community. And it must be interesting, that experience of showing some of these films to a, a larger audience than they're ever, in, not intended for, but they ever achieved before. And I wondered if you'd had any kind of su- surprising reactions to particular titles. Yeah, well, I mean, I think probably the best example is Crime Wave, a film called Crime Wave by uh, a man called John Pease. Uh, it's a Canadian film, he's Canadian. Um, it came out in 1985, barely came out in 1985, which unfortunately is also the same year that the Sam Raimi film Crime Wave came out. Um, at the same time, John had had a bad kind of distribution deal signed. So after like a kind of glorious, you know, festival debut at the the uh, what, what would become uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, the film didn't get a proper rollout and subsequently became hard to find. Um, it didn't get a proper release. It wasn't on DVD. I think it was briefly on VHS, but uh, badly marketed and also up against the Sam Raimi film, which itself didn't do that well, and arguably is inferior. Um, no offence to Sam Raimi. At first I thought Stephen had done it. After all his beginnings and endings, he would finally go all the way. He would become a successful colour crime movie maker, and I'd bring him to class and we would explain how it was done. First thing in making a colour crime movie, you need a colour crime movie maker. This person here is a colour crime movie maker. His name is Stephen. He lives in our garage. It's strange, it's deadpan, it's um, lovingly made. It kind of has the level of craft that you'd expect from a Wes Anderson film, perhaps. But it has concerns and kind of uh, thematics that you might see in kind of the same period for David Lynch. So it's really interesting to kind of put it up against something like Blue Velvet, which has the same kind of, similar kind of aesthetic in a way. We were able to bring that film back to a team-up we had with the Glasgow Film Festival and we were able to show a brand new restoration and we were able to bring John over and so um, to a sold-out screening we brought John, um, everyone loved it, there was kind of rolling laughter, he couldn't quite credit that the audience was reacting so rapturously, so it was just a kind of tragedy really because the film itself and John like should have a much higher status than they do 
Um, but it was amazing to show that to an audience, to bring John to the audience and to talk about the film. And then we've had a good opportunity to bring Crime Wave to different places around the country since then. And um, we're bringing it back for a weird weekend. Matchbox Cine Club's Weird Weekend is being held on Saturday, June 2nd and Sunday, June 3rd at the Centre for Contemporary Arts in Glasgow. I've posted a link for tickets in the blurb. That's it, the stars are forgotten, I've become monstrous, it's time to crawl away into a hole for another two weeks. My thanks to Sean, Alex and Don for their time and to you for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and check out our new home on Acast, where all good pods go to thrive. The BFI podcast is written, presented and produced by me, Henry Barnes. I'm Henry H. Barnes on Twitter. Your final line this week comes from Keanu Reeves as Ortiz the dog boy of Freaked. Just because we are freaks does not mean we do not know how to have some fun, huh? I couldn't have put it better myself. Bye. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.